Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you are a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $19 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Right Sleeve and Common Skew, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Danny Rosen, president of BrandFuel. Joining us today is Larry Cohen, president and founder of Axis Promotions, one of the most creative and compelling promotional marketing agencies in North America. Larry got his start in the promotional products business in 1989 after he decided that a career in law was not for him. With a few good ideas, a lot of enthusiasm, and a share of naivety, Larry began Axis with a mission to develop a full-service promotional products company that focused on delivering creative solutions and not merely selling products. From humble beginnings around his kitchen table, Axis has grown to over 50 employees with offices in five cities. Larry has guided Axis to be a top 40 promotional marketing distributor headquartered in New York City and has been voted Counselor Magazine best place to work for three years in a row. Larry, a warm, warm Promo Kitchen welcome. That was quite a welcome. I'm happy to be here with you guys. <laughs> it's always funny reading these things out. You know, I've got a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of creative license with this, and then uh, and I have to stick to some of the script. But uh, it's uh, it's it, it's a true honor to be speaking with you here today, um, Larry. Why don't we start off with an easy one? Uh, tell me about those days back around the kitchen table, New York City, 1989. I imagine there was probably no heat. Probably very, very humble, maybe no electricity. Like, what was it like in those early days? Uh, it wasn't quite so humble as no heat, but it was really trying to find um, the way within this industry. I mean, just as, to go back a little bit further, I had no background in the industry and knew nobody in the industry and was practicing as a lawyer and had an idea for um, giving away binoculars in arena at sporting events, which... I found out had not been done at that point, and I took it to um, the owner of an NBA team. He loved the idea and connected me up with the head office up here in New York, and they said, can you fly up here in a couple of days? And a few months later, I quit my job and was doing this. Um, kind of quickly realized that uh, as great as the opportunity was to work with the NBA, you can't build a business on one product. And started talking with other friends I knew about the, the fact that we were sourcing product in China and we were doing this binoculars thing. And somebody introduced me to this industry and said, you know, the whole industry built around this mm. and said, come to Dallas with me and snuck me under the rope because I couldn't get in by myself and was just amazed at the range of product and what was out there. Um, and if there was anything I think that made um, – us successful today and made us successful back then as well was probably the way I approached the clients that I was dealing with is which was asking more questions that are typical marketing or agency type questions themes target audiences demographics and the reaction I got from people was like very inquisitive in some cases was flabbergasted because they were just going but this is just the giveaway this isn't mm -hmm. marketing this is I just need something with our name on it. Why are you making it more complicated? And from the very start, we were trying to explain that these things last, and if you do it well, they can really be successful. So that's kind of been part of our DNA from the very beginning. And I don't know if there was any epiphany that brought me to that part, but 
our second client was American Express, and there's still a client. And that staying true to that mission, just not to sell product, but to try to put thought behind those products and how they can be used as, as to extend a marketing or to extend a brand, has really, I think, what's driven our success and um, driven everything that we still do today. I think what's so interesting about that is that here you're this person that had no industry experience at all. You didn't even really know there was an industry around branded promotional merchandise. And out of the gate, you're asking these highly strategic questions. And that that's, that's not something that typically defines a lot of the way people, how they start in this business. Um, a lot of people start in the business by selling products it can be fairly quick and easy money and that's where where the industry gets uh, this transaction reputation but uh, you say there wasn't an epiphany but it, it was there anything that influenced that style of selling because it, it strikes me as highly unusual for someone new in the industry well I mean I, my family had owned their own company it was fairly entrepreneurial and um, I was never a very linear person, so um, you know, if you really want to go back further, when I was at uh, university at, at Duke, I was a I was pre med in poli sci, so mm -hmm. it wasn't like I was just a science guy. I was political science. When I was mm -hmm. in law school, I was taking classes at Wharton. I took a marketing class um, at Wharton. So there were elements of that entrepreneurial spirit, and I think you know, just reading and learning and listening. Um, for some reason, that just seemed to make more sense to me. And um, I think there was a part of me that did not want to be a product sales person. Mm. Like there was, and not to disparage anybody out there because we can make, everyone can make a very good living selling products. I wanted to find a way to pitch what I was doing that was a bit more sophisticated than just saying, buy some pens or buy some post-it notes or buy a golf shirt or buy those things. Um, I love selling those things and I love product and I'm mm. passionate about all those things, which is why I continue to do this. But I didn't want to try to sell that way because it just seemed to me that so many people were out there trying to sell like that. And it became more apparent when you went to the trade show that there was talking with suppliers, there was just so much product out there. Mm. How are you going to differentiate selling? Um, so. As I said, there was no great epiphany, but I think it's part of part of it's part of your upbringing. Part of it is part of what you're, how you're educated, yeah. and then part of it is just trying to figure out the right strategy behind trying to build a brand or trying to build a business. And what is the what's going to be that one different thing or the few different things that are going to make you stand out from the crowd? Yeah, and and I'm curious what uh, what did your lawyer friends think back in 1989 when all of them were going off to go work for fancy Wall Street firms and you're out selling pens to the MBA. I mean, was that, was that, uh, uh well, I, I actually practiced law. Um, no, I had actually practiced law for a couple of years and it was interesting when I was practicing law, um, everyone there seemed to be happy at their jobs and whatever. And when I left the law, the people who were partners at the firm I was working at were, were envious that hmm. I was somehow, you know, making the jump to do something different or do something entrepreneurial because I think in some ways a lot of people want to do something entrepreneurial but don't take that leap because they're afraid of they're afraid of failure. Um, 
some of my some of my friends thought I was crazy. Um, my in-laws thought I was insane um, to do this. Um, and actually, it's interesting. They didn't probably really understand what I did until their daughter came to work for me. Not my wife. My sister-in-law came to work with me, and, and she actually is one of our top salespeople. And she became very successful, and they're like, "Okay, maybe we should start. Maybe they are doing something different and interesting. Let's find out a little bit more about what he's actually doing." Hmm. Um, so yeah, and I and I think there's a lot of people. I think the law was a great education. Um, I encourage people to go to law school. I don't dislike that. Um, I would say that 30% of my friends at law school, who I was friendly with at law school are still practicing law. There's a lot of them that are, that are entrepreneurs just like me. Um, some are in advertising, some are in politics, some are working um, in the media business. So I think they've taken their education and, and used it in different ways. Um, and I think if you look around this industry, there's a lot of people who started out somewhere else um, because it's very difficult to, or not difficult, but I don't think the industry does a great job of selling what we do. So a lot of people kind of fall into this, but very few people, very few people start off saying, I want to go into promotional product sales, which I think is a, is a big weakness overall in our industry right now in terms of attracting people. It's funny. I, um, I, I, I got into this industry as one of those guys, Larry, and um, interestingly enough, as you know, you know, I'm a Tar Heel and you're a Dukey. I was, I was in college selling anti-Duke shirts and, and fell into it just to make a buck. Um, and sold a lot of those shirts back in the day, and um, and now we're friends, even though we're still rivals uh, college-wise. Um, you know, it's it took a very long time for for us to develop into where our company is, and to hear you say that you guys had that in your DNA initially is 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 impressive, and that you've been able to hold true to that. Um, I have a question about that, though. I, so there's you and. Starting out of the gate, you've obviously built a business. You've got multiple locations and lots of people working for you now. Um, what were the steps to get people to mirror that philosophy? I mean, maybe this involves a little bit of how you profile your best hires and also um, maybe talk a little bit about how your organization is structured now but the evolution of that and to, to get to where you are. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with you know, like you mentioned, how you hire and how you profile the people that you're bringing in and how you train them. I think not having had a background in this industry, I had a, a fresh approach. And the first few years, I was just completely on my own, you know, going out and doing things. And then you hire that first person, and it's very easy to transfer, you know, what you believe to them because you're working right next to them day in and day out. And they hear how you talk and they hear how you speak. Um, and to hear how you pitch your business, um, but it, it it does get harder as you start adding you know more people to it, and so therefore you have to put greater emphasis on hiring those people that can speak intelligently about what you do. And even within our company, I mean, there are, there are people that sell differently. Um, some people are some people are completely strategic, and sometimes you can be strategic to a fault because you're asking sometimes too many questions and, and there are people who sometimes they don't ask enough questions. So I love going out on sales meetings with junior people, senior people. We tend to go out and pitch business as a group. Um, 
often with me, even with our most senior people who are selling millions of dollars, we'll still go out together because we learn and, and work off of each other. But I think very early on, um, every time we added a person, we were very cognizant of the fact that one bad hire can change the DNA of a company very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we really spend, we really spend, continue to spend a lot of time in the hiring side. So it's, it's not just enough to hire. And believe me, it was very tempted, tempting at times to hire someone who came to you and said, I've got a million dollar book of business um, or two million dollars books of business. We've passed on numerous people like that because they just weren't the right fit for the way we sold or what our culture is like. Um, we are structured um, in teams here so that we um, do not have order processing people. We do not have order entry um, people. We, we've built teams around strong salespeople and we tend to hire what we consider our account managers. So they're, they are the kind of people that will learn about product and will interact on a daily basis with our clients so that senior salespeople can spend more time going out and selling. But everybody is involved in the creative process because you have a team. Everybody's involved in, in managing orders and managing projects um, that are going on. And I think that team approach kind of keeps everybody keeps people from becoming isolated mm. from each other and and they build and feed off of each other um, I'm I'm just you are talking like a Harvard professor professor right now this is <laughs> that sounds so corny but I, I'm listening to you talk about this article I just read I shared it on uh, on PK's Facebook page a week ago we are talking about individual salespeople working in silos does not work as well as this performance value that happens to be, you said with about 10 times a minute ago, we're working with, we go out with, we lean on each other, we're together as a group. Um, and, and this was the, the bottom of this article, which it sounds like you're doing this really well. They ask, how would you score your reps on network performance? Are they tapping the knowledge and skills around them? Or are they still focused largely on succeeding as individuals, encouraged by their managers and organizational metrics and rewards to avoid the distractions of the rest of the company? And so they go on to say, going forward, our research indicates the answers to those questions will matter a great deal, and the old adage that sales reps are coin-operated individuals will no longer apply. You live in that, man. Kudos. Well, I mean, uh, thank you. Um, we have found, and I, you know, and again, it's something that I think everyone, you know, hopefully can take from this podcast. And uh, you guys are doing, a, I think, just a tremendous job uh, with Promo Kitchen and, and doing these types of things. Is we have built a company that is we do not allow internal competition. If you're working with account, someone else cannot go after that account. Um, and by avoiding kind of that internal competition, we've set up a. a a culture where if I got a, you know, I did one today, I got a call from a client, they need a very large quantity of something. I came up with my ideas. I wrote five sentence brief of what the client's looking for. I gave my ideas and I sent it around to the entire company. Now I've gotten responses back from about 12 people 
of all different ideas that I didn't think about hmm. on my list. Um, that goes on in a on a daily basis. You know, you're expected to do your own research. You're expected to put some thought into it. You can't just punt the you know the project down and hope somebody else will come up with a great idea for you. But the beauty of what we do is is that you have days where your brain or I didn't get to do those aisles at the show, you know, in Las Vegas. I just saw this great item. So by building you know this collaborative culture. People are encouraged that I'll give a little bit of my time on these projects because I have other projects that I'm going to throw into center, and I want people to respond back to me. Um, it is something that we have pushed for for a very, very long time, and continue to remind people that it's important to give, and you know, because if you give, you're going to get. And if you're one of those people that never throws anything to center, people aren't as likely to respond to when you need those requests. Yeah. Um, so that's that's been really, I think, one of the things that has helped us stay creative. And I think the challenge with our clients, like everybody's clients, is that you're kind of as good as your last idea. Mm. So what process are you going to put in place to keep the ideas fresh or keep the creative process going throughout you know all the orders we get, or the projects we get on a daily basis? And Larry, has it always been that way? I mean, again, going back to you around the kitchen table and then you hiring your first few salespeople and admin people to help you grow the business. I mean, were you always predisposed to working in this collaborative, team, creative-based environment? Or was it different in the early days? And then did you hit a wall uh, with structuring your teams a different way and then did something lead you to this, to the, to the way you are today, or is it, or has it been this way from day one? It was probably from day one, but I, I, again, I'm not sure if it, if I would have verbalized it the way I do today. But I think when you're when you're when you're a, you know, a single person or a small company, you're working in much smaller spaces, and so it's very easy to turn your chair around and say, "I need help on this project," and do um, we have this project coming in, and if anybody, you know, you guys have both started your own companies, you know that first hire that you make is probably the most difficult hire you ever make because suddenly that's money coming right out of your pocket and mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're, you're not, you're not, you don't necessarily know if you can, how much sales you're going to build for that. So therefore holding that person close and working with them directly kind of happens, or I felt at least, organically. And, and a lot of it probably has to do with my own style. I, I'm a collaborative learner. I learn better by being with people, and I find the interactions with people is what makes the process creative for me. Um, and so I think early on it, it wasn't something that we defined, but I think it's just you find how you, where the, your success comes from. And 21 years ago, it was a lot more difficult to do this business because you didn't have the internet, and you you had these big ASI registers that had very small print, and you hoped you had the catalog. If you didn't have the catalog, you weren't going to be able to find the product. And so, really relying on each other and relying on each other's ideas was was critical. Um, I think the learning process back then was actually better because it forced you to spend more time learning about product. You didn't have a Sage or an ESP where you could really laser right in on 
you know, a product. I'm looking for a mug in the shape of a boot. You can find that in two seconds. Now, yeah. um, back then, you actually had, you had to do a lot of research. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And But you had to look through a lot of product. And looking through product requires you to learn about product. And so we... You know, we, one of the things we battle today a little bit is how do we get people up to speed fast enough on all the different variables in our industry um, because there's a tendency to want to go right to the answer. Um, but going right to the answer kind of eliminates the journey. And that, that journey through you know, a catalog or through a website or through you know, talking to different people is where you, I think you really learn the most about the business so you've uh, you've obviously thrived Larry in the last 10 years which has been dominated by the web and Google and the social web and millennial customers and just like huge huge changes and I imagine that the last 10 years has probably looked very different than the first 10 years that you experienced in the business um, how do you to what do you attribute your success in the last 10 years in the face of increased competition, lowered margins, uh, um, so many more products, uh, easier to get into the business, lower, lower barriers to entry, um, and here you've got a largely non-web-based shop that is continuing to grow at impressive levels. To, to what would you attribute your success? Um, um, I think one of the things is, is kind of going back to what we were just started talking, talking about, which is our approach to the business. Um, I think that approach by asking questions and wanting to understand our client's business has enabled us to differentiate ourselves in some ways from people out there who are selling product. I mean, I think our industry is starting to do a better job of talking about promotional products as a marketing vehicle, as an advertising vehicle, not as a tchotchke or a novelty or a doodad or a gizmo or any of those words mm -hmm. that, you know, don't make me cringe quite as much as I used to because maybe it's just I've gotten numb to it, but it used to make me cringe when someone says, oh, you're in the tchotchke business. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, somebody allowed our industry to be defined that way. And I almost relish the fact that when people say you're in the tchotchke business, it gives me an opportunity to use, you know, past experience and use industry statistics and try to walk them through the, the thought process of, you realize that we are such a low cost per um, per touch type of item that we give you the best ROI than almost anything else you're going to do. You could spend tens of thousand dollars on your trade show and everything else, but the one thing that will last after all this stuff is done may be the promotional end that you give away that you didn't put a lot of thought into or that we want you to put a lot of thought into. And you need to think about this differently than how you're thinking about it because they literally spend you know, so much more money and so much more time thinking about everything else they are doing. And then the promotional product is kind of, and I need a giveaway with my name on it. 
it's the you know one week before the event, two weeks before the event. I need something. The person calling sometimes might be might be the senior person, and they may may understand marketing really well, or it may be a very junior person who gets the assignment of yeah. find me something with our, get something with our name on it. And I think our success has really been telling that story, and knowing that our clients can rely on us to not fall back to sure I'll just sell you I'll just sell you X Y and Z because that's what we want. Um, even when people even when people call up and say I want to order X. Um, We'll say, why X? And a lot of times the answer is, well, we were in the conference room. That's all we could come up with. And yeah. then we'll lead into, well, we're happy to price it out for you, but can you tell us what your event is? And, again, going through all those questions, do you mind if we suggest some other items for you because we think we can help improve upon what you're selecting? Yeah. You know, 98% of the time they're going to say, that would be fantastic. Um, I am still amazed, and I think, again, it goes back to how our industry has been positioned a little bit, that we can go into clients and very sophisticated clients and tell them that you can actually call us. When you start thinking about the event, way before the event and everything is defined, you can call us and we'll help you develop ideas. You mean, I don't have to pick something out of a catalog. Hmm. You mean, we don't have to go over the ideas ourselves. It, it, it's staggering to me that that is still something that they think is the norm, that you can just send them a catalog and they should pick something. Nothing wrong with sending a catalog, but Sending the catalog and just having them pick something, I think personally, you're abdicating your abdicating your responsibility to help them with their marketing. I I kind of describe what we do that I want to be the expert in the ten percent size slice of their overall marketing pie. So you've got your you got your social media people, you've got your print people, you've got your out of your outdoor thing, you've got your TV or whatever else they're doing, you've got your event people. We want to be the experts that you turn to or even your other agencies turn to for the right idea for this particular promotion. Um, and I think the last thing that's contributed to our success is that we believe in what we do and we believe that there's no reason we should not be able to ever get it done. And that mm -hmm. means that sometimes you've got to really you know, beg, borrow. You know, I don't, we don't really steal, but as close as we can come to that to try to make sure that we get our clients stuff done on time and deliver the product and that kind of can-do attitude um, in our industry can go a long way. I, I bet you have a, um, I think there's a fourth thing there that I was hoping you'd touch on and, and maybe I'm off but I, I think I'm spot on. You guys are investing into your organization. You're doing a really good job of it and maybe you can talk, talk about what you've done and I want you to hit on two things here. Um, to invest into access that hopefully will or is currently going to help you guys differentiate and, and, and present access as a different type of promotional products company. The first thing is product uh, and safety compliance and what you've done there with the hire. And then second, um, you've got a beautiful new website and a logo, which it's hard to trash, you know, a lot of brand equity and something that you've had for decades and to, to reevaluate it and go through that process. Those are two very, in my opinion, um, expensive, entrepreneurial, um, hopefully very rewarding things that you do. But that's a difficult thing for most businesses to do, to pull the trigger on these sorts of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, and thanks for bringing those up. Um, 
I think one of the, the things, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to your thing in a second, Danny, but I think one of the things that has defined, and I guess it defines me as much as it defines the company, um, is the willingness to take a risk. Um, you know, I took a risk when I quit practicing law that was, you know, I had a, making a great salary for someone right out of school. And, you know, there's a risk in starting your own business. Um, and hiring your first person, as we spoke about, is a risk. I think I'm one of those people that I'm willing to invest in opportunities that aren't always guaranteed or to invest in people with the idea that that could grow and help our business grow. So many of our other offices have come from people coming to us and saying, you know, I, I hear you're doing a great, a great job and I, I'd like to consider joining your company. And that has sometimes required us to open an office for one person, you know, in that particular area. And it's how we got started off in, in the Boston area. Now I think we have 12 or 13 people up there, but every hire we make is not always guaranteed to bring revenue in the short term. So that's one of those things that's contributed to it. Um, I think, Danny, you mentioned a couple other things. One of the things that we recognized and um, I think really is, is what, what I consider one of the, the leading challenges in our industry, we recognized a number of years ago that um, compliance and the the regulatory environment that was changing around promotional items was going to require us to make a lot of changes in how we did business and how we sourced you know product and which supplies we were going to use um, because of some of our clients they were demanding that the products be compliant and meet these testing requirements um, not everybody has those clients but I feel relatively confident that they may not be asking now, but they are going to be asking. So uh, a number of years ago, we actually hired um, a person whose expertise is in logistics and compliance. And she has really helped change the nature of how we go out to market and look for product. And she's also been really instrumental in working with our clients and educating them because most of our clients don't have any idea that there's a regulatory environment around promotional items, whether it's you know Prop 65 or the CPSIA or any of these other things, they have no clue. Um, so she has actually become, whereas before she was somewhat defensive for us, that we wanted her to make sure that we were doing things right and make sure the products we were getting met these criteria, mm -hmm. she's now become almost an offensive weapon for us because we'll bring her to meetings and to start talking about compliance and then as our clients eyes like look to us inquisitively they, or start to glaze over she'll start mentioning things they all start realizing we have a liability here and we need to figure out how to avoid that liability and so that makes them say okay access has an expertise in an area that we need um, to the point of one client that has uh, become a very good client of ours um, we didn't even meet with anybody in marketing. We met with somebody in legal, and he was so panicked after the meeting that he sent an email out and said, you need to start working with this company because we have no idea about the liabilities that we have, and these guys do, so start using them. Um, so that's become something that has actually helped us grow. You know, uh, It's also created some challenges because as you get deeper and deeper into the regulatory stuff, 
it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. But so that's been a, been a great thing um, for us. And it's been a great thing for our staff. Um, this, past, uh, this past year, we actually did a compliance summit where we brought in experts from the industry and invited our clients to a five-hour um, symposium on compliance where we had these speakers come in, talk about different aspects of this to educate them and to give them a, a high-level overview of what um, some of the challenges are. And then we had some, some key suppliers there as well just to share some of their compliant product. So um, that's in one. And then the other thing that you mentioned, Danny, is just the, the rebrand that we just went through. Um, we had a website that was very cutting edge um, a long time ago. And as is with many things, it didn't evolve as we were evolving because we were too busy doing things for our clients and it kept getting pushed off. And I would see a design and I wasn't completely enamored with it. Um, and then last year we decided it was really time to do it. And as we started getting into the process, we started looking at our logo, um, which had very good brand recognition with our clients, had very good brand recognition in the industry and was fun and was whimsical. But as we started looking at it, we kind of said, I think we've changed a little bit over time. I think we've evolved away from that logo a little bit. And so we hired an outside agency who was going to help with our, our website and said, can you take a look at our brand as well? And the usual reaction we got was, we're going to insist on looking at your brand because the mission that you've given us in terms of building out your website and what you are to the industry we don't think that your brand or your logo speaks to that anymore. And that sometimes is hard to hear, and you can push back because your ego is involved with your brand a little bit. And But as we went through the process, it became much more apparent that they were right, that we needed to look at that and see how we could freshen up what we were doing and freshen up the look a little bit. And they really took us through this in this really incredible and at many times painful process of self-discovery about who we are and what are we really all about and what is the message that we want our clients to get when they look at our brand or look at our website and to feel like does it look fresh, does it look energetic, um, does it look creative and all of those things we think, you know, obviously at this point we've now changed it and it's out there um, on the web. We think our, our brand speaks to that now. And it, it took almost uh, probably nine months of, of process to do it. Um, probably would have taken three years if we had done it internally. Um, but it's been really well received internally. And I, it, was, it was scary to do it because we didn't actually let everybody know in our company that we were going to do this. We picked a small group of people who were going to be involved in this but did not want to make this a everybody gets a vote on these things because otherwise it would never happen. And the reaction internally has been really fantastic and the few clients that have seen it so far um, are really love it. So we're getting some great responses. Larry, I know that uh, it was um, it, it was uh, neat to be in, involved in, in some of the mock-ups and, and ideas as you were going through this. So, so thank you for, for uh, getting, getting some of our thoughts on this. And, but I, and, and kudos to you. It, it's really, uh, I know when you sent it off to Catherine and myself uh, a week ago, it just was uh, 
really, really nice job. So I, I say that to you as a colleague, if someone else is in the business, that uh, you've done a really standout job. And I think it's a real improvement from what you, from what you came from. Um, and my, my comment following up on what you just said there is I think it's, it's interesting as, as we've gone through these podcasts uh, for the last couple of years that, um, you know, this idea of us being experts in branding as it relates to our clients, yet uh, being horrible at branding ourselves as distributors is, is something that we've talked about with other people. And I think, it's a, I think it contributes to the, the branding challenge that we have as an industry that many of us are very good at selling products to our, to our clients and making them look good, but then you go to our websites and our branding. Um, I mean, I, I maybe say this is a general rule that a lot of a lot of distributors and and even suppliers in this business don't spend a lot of time making themselves look good. So um, hats off to you guys for investing in that process and not only making yourselves look good, but then uh, by extension making the industry look good. And, and I think the industry is starting to do a better job of it. I think the the research that's now being you know maybe I just didn't see it before, but I feel like. People are starting to push out more industry statistics, and PPAI does theirs, and ASI does theirs. That really does help educate people about the power of a promotional item. Mm. And we just have to figure out how we can speak about it at a higher. Everyone can speak about it at a higher level, and not you know kind of just immediately go back to it's just a you know it's just a, a something with your name on it. Um, I just in looking at the time, I think that uh, we, we probably have time for uh, maybe two more questions, uh, one from me and one from Danny. Uh, I, I know that one thing that I wanted to ask you about, Larry, was, was this idea of how we can work better in this industry as uh, distributors and suppliers and how suppliers uh, specifically can do a better job of connecting and servicing distributors and really making us better customers of theirs. Uh, I know that that was something you had spoken about at the uh, NALC last year, and I wanted to see if you had any thoughts that you wanted to share with listeners of the podcast in terms of some maybe top two or three things that suppliers can be doing to be better connecting and engaging with us as distributors. Uh, I mean, I think the most important thing is actually to know who the who your audience is when you're talking to a distributor that to walk into a room and to lay out a bunch of stuff on the table and just start demonstrating product is kind of doing what we're we can do on our own which is we can look at product in a catalog and get that kind of information out and we can order samples and touch them but i think if you actually get to know the people who are in the room there assuming they're willing to do this with you. You can actually be a resource for them to come to saying, I have, and give them the same challenge that we give people internally, which is, I have this client, they're looking for some ideas. You know your product line. Can you help me develop some ideas around that? There are many, many, many suppliers that are willing to do, you know, renderings and vignettes and come up with ideas for you. But you've got to feel comfortable that they're actually going to spend some time actually thinking about it. So we're trying to change some things internally where we're starting to try to encourage, instead of coming in and having our whole team come in and sit with you for 30 minutes while you go through your line, 
coming in will block off some time in a conference room and let you have individual meetings with those people and talk with them one-on-one -on -one about what their, who their clients are and know that they work with these five clients or these 20 clients and you know who they are so that when you see items, you can send them an idea. I was just thinking about your client X. Here's a great item that might work for them. Be proactive. Um, life is easy if you, you know, life is easy and less complicated if you just want to sit back and wait for the orders. But sometimes the orders may not come to you because someone may outsell you. So mm -hmm. they need to sell as much as we need to sell. And the only way we can sell is by knowing who our clients are. And they should really approach it the same way. Um, I also think one thing that suppliers should do is they should ask for feedback. How did I do in this meeting? How was the presentation? Did you think it was effective? Um, because when you ask that question, you've got to be prepared for an honest answer, but that honest answer may help you improve how you present the next time because you don't want to come in and go, oh, goodness, this guy's here again. You want him to come in and say, I love the way he presents because he's always coming and giving me ideas that work for me. Yeah. Um, so th those are, to me, the, the biggest things, which is being engaged in the clients that you have and we're their clients. So I'm really understanding where we're coming from and, and putting that, putting themselves out more than just I have a 30-minute meeting I'm just going to go through and go on auto drive for 30 minutes. My last question for you, Larry, is um, is around the Best Places to Work Award that you guys have won. And um, beyond the uh, proverbial ice cream social, what are some things that you might recommend, either things that you guys have done or just some things that uh, maybe don't cost a lot out of pocket, but things that you would suggest for suppliers or distributors that they can do within their organizations to uh, you know, beef up culture, have some fun, and, and get one of those uh, nice awards? I think the things that, that work, and again, it, it's great if you have the resources to have a party and, and do things like that, but I think the things that people really want today is they want to be recognized for the work that they are doing, and I think part of having a culture is setting a standard that you want to live by and then do the best you can to be consistent through that and recognizing that people are doing a good job. and that doesn't necessarily have to be financial. It could be a, a quick phone call. Heard you did a great job. Those types of things really work. Um, the other thing that I think we have found, and um, Dan, I know this is something that you're very passionate about, and Mark, I know you do, you are too, but we have found that doing volunteer work and doing other things that get people outside of the office or outside of their routine really does build the culture because it helps people feel good about what they're doing, and they realize the company is not just about the almighty buck. Um, so those are just a couple simple things that we have done. I mean, we had, we've done things where we've done Tuesday desserts where people sign up and just someone makes a homemade dessert, you know, every Tuesday. And they, you sign up on a list, and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. But on Tuesday at 2, you know, people were bringing in various desserts, and we just say in the conference room, everyone desserts being served. Um, doesn't cost a lot, and, and people love that. They love the fact that they could, someone else was going to bring a dessert in for them once a week, and they were, you know, eventually they'd be back on the list again. And, you know, we don't do it every single, you know, it goes for a period, then we stop it, and then it goes for another period. But none of this stuff has to cost a lot of money. Um, just being, you know, a good listener and 
for me, I, you know, I don't have a door in my office. People can come in and ask me any sorts of questions. I think that kind of openness really can um, help the culture. And finally, I have found over time that pushing the culture down so that they feel empowered to build a culture, I think if I told everybody what our culture was, it wouldn't really be a culture. It would be Larry you know, talking again. It would be like the Charlie Brown teacher. It would be wah, 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 as opposed to saying, what do you guys want the culture to be? Here's, here, why don't you put a committee together and tell me what you'd like it to be? And we find that it now sort of bubbles up from the bottom as opposed to being pushed down from the top. And I think that's been really, really helpful because it empowers them to make access a little bit about what they want it to be, not just what I think it should be. You know, it's funny, Larry. I always imagine you to be more like the teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off as opposed to uh, Charlie Brown. But uh, <laughs> 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 um, so, Larry, as actually, I, I, actually, the teacher is the teacher in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Hand, Mr. Hand, exactly. <laughs> Oh, um, so Larry, as as we uh, as we put put a, a, a close to this podcast, uh, you know, you've got the last word, my friend. Uh, anything that you want to share in closing with uh, the distributors and suppliers that are listening to this podcast? Nothing, nothing in particular. Although I would say that you know, you know, I'm newer to the uh, the promo kitchen uh, group, and I think. The challenges that we have spoken about today, I think Promo Kitchen is doing a tremendous job um, really helping to push this industry in a direction that it really needs to go. And I would say, you know, take advantage of the resources that, that's up on the website and these podcasts or getting engaged in it because I think there's so many things that business owners, whether it's distributors, suppliers, can take back to their own organizations to make us all, you know, better. And... Um, finally, you know, my I'm always happy to if people want to reach out or have questions. Um, I'm always available to help or mentor, you know, along those lines. Well, and and on that note, Larry, we're certainly uh, all, all of Danny and myself and and all the other chefs are really excited to uh, to welcome you into our ranks. And we know that uh, I mean, with jokers like Danny and and myself involved, uh, you, it, having you on board certainly raises the professionalism exponentially. So. Um, the age. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, you didn't say that. You get no love, no love for Larry. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, listen, this has been great, and we often say that with, with our podcasts, I mean, all the ones that we've done, we've always had great conversations, and uh, certainly look forward to a version two at, at some point. And, uh, but thanks so much, Larry and, and Danny. A, a pleasure to be uh, chatting with you, as always, my good friend. Right back at you, man. Thanks for uh, for joining us. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much.